together. Amen. Thank you so much for your worship. Go ahead and be seated. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 15. That's where we're going to hang out in our Bible study time. Reach into your bulletin and pull out the notes so that you can follow along today. If you have our Journey Church International app, you can fire that up. Everything on our screens will be in your handheld device. If you're streaming with us online live, thanks for hanging out with us on Facebook or wherever you may be today, uh, being in church with us in Lee Summit from wherever you are. We're in a series called Family Stronger. We're in week four of learning how to battle brokenness. We're in week four of learning how to refuse to quit. We are meeting in families in the Bible who remind us a lot of ourselves, who can teach us a lot about our family so that we can be stronger. In week one, we met Cain and Abel. We saw their sin and brokenness, how it impacted their family, but we saw their mom and dad, Adam and Eve, who refused to quit. Last week, we met Samson and we met his parents and we learned why it's so important to be proactive and strong in spiritual leadership. This week, we meet a family that doesn't have a name, but it's one that you might know the best. We don't know the mom's name, the dad's name, the kids' names, the last name, but it's a family that you might know really, really well because it's the family of the prodigal son, which I want to introduce to you today is the family of the prodigal sons, because in this family today, we're going to learn a lesson about the things in life that divide family. We're going to learn about the things in life that divide friendships. We're going to learn about the things in life that divide marriages. And we're going to learn about the type of love that can bring all of those things together if you're living in kind of a season of division or tension in your family. We're going to learn all that from Luke chapter 15. But my prayer always is that you learn less about the family in the Bible than you do about the family in your house. I want you today to hear what God has to say about your family, not just this family. So before we begin, would you just bow your heads quickly and would you whisper this prayer from your heart to heaven? Would you ask God today to speak to you about your family and the things that might be dividing your family? Would you ask God to show you the type of love that would bring strength to your family? to show you how you can love that way. God, we know that every time the people of God study the word of God, that the spirit of God has the ability to sink some seeds deep into our hearts that lead to spiritual transformation. We pray that happens today as we see things that divide families and friendships and as we see things that can bring those back together. Speak to us about our lives, our situations, and help our lives to look more like Jesus. We love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Luke 15, we're going to kind of read kind of all over this chapter today, so keep it open on your laps, but we're going to kind of journey through our lesson as we go through Luke 15. We're going to start with the first three verses. It says this, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them a parable. If you have your pen, you might circle this word, parable. You say, what is a parable? A parable, for those of you who may be new to church, is an earthly story with a spiritual meaning. We just read that Jesus was hanging out with people who weren't spiritual. Jesus was hanging out with people who weren't religious. Maybe you're here today and you're not a spiritual person. Maybe you're here today and you're not a religious person. Maybe you're watching online and you're not really a church person, which is why you're watching online first. You would have loved Jesus. Because Jesus wanted to make sure everyone understood his story. So often he would tell stories about earthly things that had spiritual meanings because he knew if he just read the Bible, people wouldn't really understand all of it. So he taught biblical principles through earthly stories. In Luke chapter 15, he would tell three stories, actually, three parables. He'd tell a story about a shepherd who lost a sheep. 
and who left 99 to go get the sheep trying to explain how much God loves one person who doesn't know him. Maybe you're that one person today. He would tell a story about a woman who had a a chain with 10 coins on it and she lost one coin. In those days, you wouldn't get an engagement ring. You would get an engagement necklace. And if you had 10, it meant you were engaged. If you had nine, it meant you were not yet. So her identity would have been lost. And he talked about a, a woman who stopped everything to find a coin that would let the world know I'm connected to them. Jesus said, that's kind of how God loves you. He'll stop everything to be connected to you and to let the world know he's connected to you. And then he told a story about a family that had two sons that we know as the prodigal sons, plural, I believe, So that as we met this family, we could understand how God loves us, but we can also learn a lot about how families kind of come apart through this story. In verse 11, he began the story about this family, and it says this, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. Now I want to stop right there, because as we meet these two sons today, we're going to learn about them, and we're going to learn from them. Some of you have these sons in your family. Some of you are these sons. Um, some of you are a dad who has these sons. Some of you are daughters, but you are these sons. Some of you are married to one of these sons. You're going to meet people in a family that have some barriers in their life that keep you from being a strong family. See, these two sons represent today and show us the barriers that reside in people to having a strong family. And as we battle brokenness and as we try to refuse to quit, that's what we've been looking at this entire series, barriers to having a strong family. In the first week, we looked at how sin causes brokenness, and that's a huge barrier to a family. In the second week, we looked at how conflict, if not handled well, can be a huge barrier to having a strong family. Last week, we looked at how passive parenting how not having proactive spiritual leadership can be a real barrier in your family. And today we see three more as we look at these two boys. We see barrier number one, selfishness. Selfishness is a barrier to having a strong family. Luke 15, 11 said there was a father who had two sons. Meet the first one in verse 12. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me... My share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. If you have your pen again, you might circle the word property. I'm going to talk to you in a minute about that word. It's an interesting word. When you as a son asked your dad 2,000 years ago to give you your share of the inheritance, the dad did not cash in his 401k. The dad did not write you a check. The dad did not divide his balance sheet and give you some assets. 2,000 years ago, nobody in Israel would have had an, an accumulation of wealth, all of their money, was in their land, and all of their land was ancestral. It had been passed down from great-grandpa, grandpa, dad to sons to grandchildren to great-grandchildren. You really weren't even supposed to buy and sell land in Israel. It was supposed to belong to families for generations. So when this son went to his dad and said, give me my share of the estate, he was asking his dad to sell off a piece of land that had been in their family forever so that he could have the money. He literally was telling his dad, I want a divorce from the family. I don't care about the family. I don't care about any family I have ever had in my past. I don't care to be attached to this family at any time in my future. I just want the little piece of it that is mine. Dad, I need you for what you have, but not who you are. I really don't even want to be connected to you. Just give me what is mine. We see selfishness being a huge barrier to this family. And if you live in a family with someone who's extremely selfish, 
from the TV shows they watch to where they sit in the house to the habits that they have to where they like to eat out. If you have someone in your family who's extremely selfish, you know at some point you just kind of let them have their way and you kind of give a little bit of your life away every time you're around them, which is an interesting way to put this because it said the dad divided his property between them, but there were lots of different words in the Greek language, which the New Testament was originally written in for property. This one is interesting because it's the word bios. We get the English word biology from it because the root of biology, the word bios, means life. It literally tells us that when the son said, Dad, give me my share of the estate, it literally means that the dad had to tear his life apart to meet the selfishness of one family member. But the younger son was just getting started. We see selfishness is a barrier to having strong families, but barrier number two is sin. We've talked about this a lot in this series already, but I want you to see this son's journey because in verse 13, after he got his money, it says not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. And he set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. You say, what kind of wild living? We won't go through all the details, but in verse 18, here's how he described his wild living. He described it as sin. After he got tired of it, after he ran out of money, after he realized it didn't bring him all the joy he wanted in verse 18, he said, I'm going to set out and I'm going to go back to my father. And I'm going to say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Now, this is where their story becomes our story or at least becomes a a real story because all of us know somebody who lives in a family where selfishness and sin have literally ripped that family apart. You see, sin and selfishness in a family can literally tear the life of a family apart. I know families who have been torn apart by sin and selfishness. You know families that have been torn apart by sin and selfishness. Some of you right now are in a family That is being torn apart by sin and selfishness. We all know that the value of a strong, loving family can literally be brought to pieces when one person decides to be selfish, when one person chooses sin over family, when a secret habit that becomes a destructive addiction tears a family completely to pieces, when a secret relationship that becomes a public affair completely tears a family to shreds. When a single lie rips apart the trust forever that a family held so dear. When one blow up can tear years of peace apart. When one selfish family member can make a decision that leaves the rest of the family scrambling. You know families like that. I know families like that. Some of us are in families like that. One dad's decision. One mom's decision. One teenager's decision has literally felt like it has ripped the family apart. Sin and selfishness are barriers to having a strong family. But it's not just sin and selfishness. To get really specific, it's our sin and selfishness that are really dangerous to our families. It's your sin and selfishness that are really dangerous to your family. It's why we've said this month we need to start being open about these things. We need to start confessing these things. We need to start dealing with these things. We need to start getting help for these things. We need to start being held accountable for these things because sin and selfishness in the life of anyone in a family will eventually tear that family to shreds. But that's just the younger son in today's narrative. I also want to introduce you to the older son because maybe you're not the younger son, 
but you are a barrier to your family because you're the older son. You see, prodigal son number two represents somebody who divides the family through barrier number three, self-righteousness. See, selfishness will make it very difficult for your family to be strong. And sin will make it almost impossible for your family to be strong. But as we dip into this story, we see self-righteousness can also cause great division in your family. It can cause great division in a church family. We pick up this story in verse 17 at a pretty sad juncture. The younger son is out of money. He's not having fun anymore. And he decides, you know what? I have no money. I'm having no fun. The people who worked for my dad have it better than I do. I'm going to go back and just see if he'll give me a job. I know he'll never accept me into the family, but maybe he'll give me a job. In his return home, we see an older brother whose self-righteousness keeps the family divided. Look at verse 17. It says, when the younger son came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'm going to set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost. And now he's found, so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Self-righteousness can be a major barrier to your family spiritually being strong. Now, here's what you need to understand. I believe self-righteousness is a dangerous detour on the road to a more mature spirituality. I don't believe self-righteousness is a destination we're ever supposed to get to. I, I don't believe anyone in their spiritual journey ever kind of programs into their spiritual GPS self-righteousness. It's where I'm hoping to get to. But as you mature spiritually, as you start taking seriously the things of God, and as you start focusing on your personal righteousness and your personal holiness, you can make a pit stop at a town called self-righteousness and enjoy yourself so much there that you decide to camp out there, that you decide to live there, and you just kind of judge everyone passing back and forth on their spiritual journey, that's where the older brother was. You say, how do I make sure I don't end up there? How do I make sure as I mature spiritually that I don't stop too long at this town called self-righteousness? Well, in his book, Accidental Pharisee by Larry Osborne, one of my favorite pastors, one of my favorite authors, he describes how a Christian can become self-righteous, although nobody intends to, some do. You say, how does it happen? Step number one, it begins with a failure to grasp the true gravity and depths of my own sin. All of a sudden, my sin is not as big a deal as somebody else's sin. And all of a sudden, instead of comparing my relationship 
to Jesus' relationship to his father, I begin to compare my relationship with Jesus to others' relationships with Jesus, and I think they're way worse than I am. Jesus talked about not caring so much about the speck in somebody else's eye that you don't take the plank out of your own. This week in the Activate podcast, I hope you can listen to it. I go into great detail teaching about specks and planks. I don't think you'll ever think of them the same after you hear our study this week on the difference between specks in the eyes of others and planks in our own eyes. It begins with a failure to grasp the true gravity and depths of my own sin. All of a sudden, we think kind of how hard we've worked spiritually gives us a special kind of grace with God, and maybe we don't need as much of his forgiveness. It then becomes followed by a heightened disgust for the sins of others. We look at our sins as easily forgivable because God understands that we're broken, but then we look at the sins of other people and we think, wow, they are They are really, really bad. And we don't care so much that they're separated from God as to how much they're sinning. Their sin bothers us more than their separation from God. Notice the older brother didn't point out how badly the brother had treated the father. He just pointed out how gross the sin was that the brother had been involved in. It wasn't as big a deal to him that the son and the father were separated or that the son and father were now together. What bothered him was how gross he thought the sin was. It disgusted him, the actions of his sin. And then eventually it becomes solidified in our spirit by being justified by what Osborne calls a cut-and-paste theology that emphasizes some of the hard sayings of Jesus while ignoring those that speak of his compassion and his mercy and his grace. It emphasizes the two or three hardest statements of Jesus that he made to one or two of his disciples. And it says, if everyone doesn't follow that, probably they're not even Christians. They take one of the one or two most challenging statements of Jesus that they found kind of easy to apply in their life, and they've said, this now is the standard of Christianity. They ignore the whole, the whole be perfect because I'm perfect, and they say, you know, I, I give and I go and I, I do a couple things. And anyone who does this, they probably aren't a Christian at all. Let me give you a real-life example. Several years ago, I was speaking at a youth camp, and one of the pastors I was speaking with and I After an evening session of youth camp, went to Subway real late at night. It was one of the only places open in this little town in North Georgia. Past midnight, and we were sitting at Subway eating, and he had been doing an in-depth study on the parable of the sower. You know, a sower went out to sow his seed, Matthew 13. Some fell on the path, some fell on the shallow soil, some fell among the thorns, and some fell on good soil where it produced a crop. And he wanted to have a discussion on which of these soils I thought were authentic Christianity. Which one of these people do you think really got saved, and which one do you think, you know, were kind of false commitments and these people were never Christians. Christians for ages have had this discussion. Who in the parable of the soil is really a Christian? And he had come to this conclusion and he wanted to sell me on it. He was convinced the only real Christian in the story was the good soil. And here's why. Because the good soil produced a crop 30, 60, or 100 times what was sown. And he wanted to convince me that nobody was a real Christian unless they had led at least 30 other people to Christ. Because good soil produces a crop of at least 30, 60, or 100. So it was his belief that no one who hadn't led 30 people to Christ was a real Christian. That was, that was his position. And he said, what do you think? And I said, how could you ever know that? Like, so you're saying for me to say that I led someone to Christ, they would have to lead 30 people to Christ. Yes. But I said, wouldn't they all have to lead 30 people to Christ to prove that they were all Christians? Like, have you done the math? And he said, I'm not good at math. And I said, you're also not good at discipleship. Like that, like that is not, that is not the purpose of that parable. The purpose of that parable is not for us 
to pick and choose who is a Christian and who is not. And I said, do you think the thief on the cross led 30 people to Christ before he died? Do you think he's in heaven? Well, he was an exception. I said, no, that, see, that, that's where self-righteousness just kind of writes our own Bible and our own standards. And it becomes very dangerous for other people. You say, how do I know if I have some self-righteousness in my life? Well, I've got a little list here. Your self-righteousness might be a barrier if, number one, you have a big Bible but a tiny heart. If you are someone that people know knows all the answers, but you have very little love. If someone knows they have a Bible question that they can come to you, but if they have a sin to confess, they better not. Because you've got a big Bible and you know all the answers, but you've got a really tiny heart, you may have the barrier of self-righteousness in your life. Number two, if you love the spiritually lost and hardcore sinners, but you can't stand the less than sold out Christian, you might struggle with self-righteousness. I know people who will go do prison ministry on death row with people they're trying to lead to Christ, but they won't talk to their son or daughter who's gotten a divorce because Christians should know better. And it's like, how can you love lost people so much but just reject Christians who are struggling? Like, is, is that the real heart of Jesus? Your self-righteousness might be a barrier. Number three, if you want to keep anybody with less spiritual commitment than you out of your church. If you think, you know what, I wish our church was filled with more people like this. I can't tell you how many people in our church. This is a true story, unfortunately. Talk to me about how many other people in our church don't raise their hands when they worship. Because they're convinced that means they don't love God. I hear that once a month, at least. And I always want to say, say, what do you think about that? And I always say, I close my eyes. Like, I'm only looking at God when I worship. I'm not looking at anyone else. So maybe... You should just focus on the Lord and let everybody else, everybody worships differently. You know, for people who think, I wish our church was filled with people like me, guess what? The five years ago, you probably couldn't have been a part of your church today if you're growing spiritually at all. Your self-righteousness might be a barrier, number four, if you forgot that the entry exam into heaven is a blood test and not a scantron. I meet people all the time that say, I don't know how someone can say they really love Jesus if they don't know all the answers. They don't know their doctrinal positions. They haven't memorized so many verses. You realize for the first 1,500 years of the church, no one had a Bible. There was no Awana. There was no Bible quizzing. Again, let's go to the thief on the cross. Who do you think would win a Bible quizzing tournament, you or him? It was his relationship with Jesus. And then finally, get ready, number five, your self-righteousness might be a barrier if you are thinking of somebody else while we review this list. See how that works? I had someone at the 8 a.m. service who said I had a name written next to the first four. And when you said that, I went and I scratched them out as quickly as I could. See how self-righteousness works? It's so focused on others that it doesn't see in itself where it falls short of Jesus, where it is not Jesus, where, where we are not the standard. Jesus is the standard. And self-righteousness becomes a barrier like the older brother that says... Either they're out of the family or I'm out of the family. But it can be extremely divisive. Both sin and self-righteousness can ultimately destroy a family. And it was destroying the family in Luke chapter 15. As a matter of fact, without the father's love, neither of the brothers would have ever been invited back into the family. Without the father's love, 
neither of the brothers would have been welcomed back in. They would have both been on the outside. But the good news of this story, the good news of this family is not the brothers. The brothers show us barriers. Sin and selfishness and self-righteousness, those are all barriers to our family being strong. But the father shows us building blocks of a strong family. If you're here and you say, my family has been negatively impacted by one person's selfishness. My friendships have been deeply impacted by one person's sin. Our family right now has a little battle going on because of one person's self-righteousness. The question is, what do I do? The answer is, look to the father. Because this story is not about the prodigal son, nor the prodigal sons. The story is about this loving father. He is the point of the entire story. And when we look at how the father deals with people in sin, selfishness, and self-righteousness, we learn how to build a stronger family. What are the four building blocks of a strong family that we see in this dad? Number one, grace. We see grace. We see grace from this father towards both of his sons who are standing outside the family dealing with their own issues, which were very different but had placed them in the exact same place outside the family. You say, what is grace? Grace is undeserved favor. Grace is treating someone better than they deserve. Grace is loving someone who does not deserve to be loved. Grace is welcoming somebody back who does not deserve to be welcomed back. Grace is showing someone favor that does not deserve it. And we see that grace in this story forgives before there was even an apology. Grace is a heart issue before it's an action In this story, the dad forgave before the son apologized. Look at the picture drawn for us in verse 20 of Luke chapter 15. It says, the son got up because he came to his senses. I'm out of money. I'm not having any fun. Just going to go home. It says, the son got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Notice the son had not even spoken yet. He had no idea if the son was coming back to say, I need more money or I'm sorry. There was no conversation. There was no transaction spiritually that had taken place yet. There was just grace. There was just undeserved love, not even understanding how everything would turn out. There was no kind of compromise of ideas. It was just a son on his way back and a father showing grace who chose to love before the son had even asked for love. Grace forgives before the apology and forgiveness is number two. If you want to have a strong family, you have to learn to forgive. And we have to learn... Again, as we look at this story, that forgiveness is a choice. Forgiveness is an action, how you treat somebody. And forgiveness may one day become an emotion too, but, but maybe not. Forgiveness is first a choice. This father chose to forgive his son before they ever even had a conversation. And then he acted upon that choice and said, I'm going to love you regardless of how you're approaching me. I'm going to love you. And it appears rather quickly for him that this, this forgiveness also became an emotion. He felt it. He was okay. He didn't hold the son's past against him. But forgiveness is a choice. It's an action in how we relate and, and connect with people. And it may, if we choose and act enough On a spirit of forgiveness, it may become something that we feel too. But look at the Father's forgiveness in Luke 15, 21 through 23. 
The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Forgiveness was an emotion that he acted upon. And it's interesting, as we look at this little lens of self-righteousness, I have found that it's a lot easier for people to show grace to family members struggling with sin and selfishness than it is to show to family members who are struggling with self-righteousness. But again, what does that make us? If we will show grace to a family member struggling with sin, and if we will show grace to a family member struggling with selfishness, but we have no time for anyone who's struggling with self-righteousness, again, what does that say about us spiritually? Grace chooses to forgive, and the culmination of grace and forgiveness Number three is often restoration. You say, how do I know if I've shown enough grace? How do I know if I've really forgiven? One good measurement is, has the relationship been restored? Has the relationship been restored? In Luke 15, 24, we see a relationship restored. The dad said, the son of mine was dead, but he's alive again. He was lost, but he's found. I believe one of the greatest tests of grace and forgiveness in broken relationships is restoration. I believe one of the greatest tests of grace and forgiveness is this, is something that used to be dead becoming alive again because you've chosen grace and you've chosen forgiveness. Is a relationship that is dead coming alive again because you're showing grace and you're showing forgiveness? Does a relationship that has died even have the hope of coming alive again because you're willing to show grace, you're willing to show forgiveness? Grace and forgiveness often lead to restoration, but all of it is only possible because of this character trait, number four of the dad, extended love. Extended love. This dad extended love to two boys who were both on the outside of his family. In both cases, to both sins, the father had to extend love to them. And here's what we see in the parable of the prodigal sons. Extending love always goes out to try to bring in. Extending love does not say, I'll be gracious, I'll be forgiving. They know where to find me when they want to be in relationship again. That is not extending love. Extending love goes out to meet them. To the younger son in Luke 15, 20, extending love went out. Go to the verse if you will. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and he ran to his son. Extending love goes out. And to the older brother, extending love goes out. In Luke 15, 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So the father went out. Extending love always goes out. Grace, forgiveness, restoration, and extended love are all ultimately a picture of what Jesus has done for us. And that's the whole point of Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, the shepherd who goes and gets the lost sheep, the woman who searches diligently for the coin, the father who loves both his sons, they all represent Jesus and they're a picture of his love. He's the shepherd that leaves 99 to go after one. He's the woman who stops everything so that her identity and connection to someone else can be known. And he's the father who will go out to boys in sin and selfishness and go out to boys in self-righteousness and invite them both to be a part of his world. He is God who stepped out of heaven to come to us to invite us to go back and be with him. By definition, the father really is the prodigal of the story. Because when you look at the word prodigal, Webster's Dictionary defines the word prodigal as recklessly spendthrift 
It's someone who spins until they have nothing left. And in this story, the true, recklessly spendthrift person who spent everything was the father. As Tim Keller talks about in his book, Prodigal God, the only person in this story willing to spend until they had nothing left on his family was the dad. The only person with a reckless love was the dad. And the dad represents Jesus, full of grace, choosing to forgive before anyone even apologized. Someone who was so full of forgiveness that he decided to forgive and he acted upon forgiveness. And he feels a deep love towards anyone who would seek and accept that forgiveness. Jesus is someone who restores people who were born separated from God outside the kingdom of God. But he wants to come to us and invite us in. And Jesus is the one who extended his love by what we celebrate as Christmas, stepping out of heaven to come to earth. The prodigal sons show us barriers to a stronger family. The loving father shows us the building blocks. And all of us who have Jesus, we've experienced grace. We've experienced forgiveness. We've experienced restoration of our relationship with God. And we've seen Jesus walk to us where we are. Those of us who know Jesus have the building blocks in us to make our family strong. We just have to choose to act on the building blocks rather than the barriers. What is God saying to you about those two areas today? If you want a stronger family, you're going to have to eliminate the barriers. You're going to have to embrace the building blocks. My hope is that you won't just pray about doing that, but you'll act upon it today and this week. Would you pray with me? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed across this room. Before this message started, you asked God to speak to you. You told him you would be listening. What is God saying to you about your family today? What are the barriers right now that are breaking your family? Sin and selfishness and self-righteousness. What are the barriers that are keeping your family from being stronger? And what building blocks can you use to begin to embrace a stronger family today? Has God spoken to you about those things? What barriers need to go? What building blocks need to be embraced? God, I pray you'll help us to become stronger by eliminating our barriers and by embracing your building blocks. Thank you for Jesus, the loving spiritual father who set the example for us and who shows us how to love with grace and forgiveness for the purpose of restoration, and who always goes out to invite us in. Help us to be more like him so our families might be strong. God, we love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name today. And everyone said, amen.